Something pretty audacious and amazing was happening in Europe 500 years ago, right about now. It was illegal to read the Bible. Uh, But unless you could read Greek or Hebrew or Latin, you weren't going to read it anyway, because that was the only language you were going to find it in. The Bible was locked up, um, uh, and people were locked out of its wisdom and its beauty. Man, that is hard for us to imagine today, but it was true. But there was this guy in Germany named Martin Luther who started what we now call the Protestant Reformation. Protestant because he was protesting the power-hungry and abusive practices of the Catholic Church, which was pretty much the church at the time, and Reformation because he was demanding that things be reformed or changed and set right. And one of those big things that he felt needed to be set right was this. Everyday people should be allowed to read the Bible. Now, this was some pretty treasonous and heretical talk back then because the church and the state were tightly wound together. And the authorities liked the power exactly where it was, and that was with them. But reading the Holy Scriptures empowers people. Power in Christ, absolutely. Power to think, power to believe for themselves, power to Change. All of that happens when we begin to download God's word into us. So, a guy in England named William Tyndale devoted himself to translating the Bible into English from the original languages. Now, this was revolutionary. And not revolutionary as in, wow, what a wild idea, but revolutionary as in this, if allowed to happen, would turn the world upside down. Tyndale had a goal in life. This is the way he put it. If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than any learned man today. And so began a life of hiding and smuggling and dodging death threats, all in order that the Bible could be translated into a language that all his people, English-speaking people, could read. Tyndale's translation was the first to take advantage of the new medium of the printing press. So, of course, this allowed for unprecedented distribution. His first completed copies began appearing in 1526, and they were immediately banned by both the king and the church. In fact, check this out. Bishops ordered all copies that could be found to be gathered and burned. What passed as the church at the time was making sure that the scriptures could not, would not be read by people. What were they so afraid of? Well, in short, they were afraid of the Bible. The Bible you keep on a coffee table or on your nightstand. The Bible that you read or intend to read or maybe too often end up neglecting to read. The Bible that some of us grew up learning in Sunday school as little kids and now whose words we may too easily take for granted because of our familiarity, which has made us forget their power. That Bible was more powerful than perhaps we realize, but they knew for sure. We begin our All Requests Summer tackling this super interesting and super important subject that was brought as the request came in, the Bible, and why we can trust it. And I'm beginning this message with a reminder that while it looks safe and innocent enough, 
leather bound with the ribbon bookmark and the gilded edges. It is potent and explosive and even dangerous in the most compelling of ways. Now, we call the Bible the Word of God, and saying this is no small thing. We believe that while it was written by sincere and devoted human authors, it was and is divinely inspired and provides through the story it tells and the wisdom it shares, the context and instruction we need to live life as God intends for us. Paul put it like this to the Romans, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Or as the psalmist put it more succinctly many centuries earlier, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. We can have confidence, which I hope to demonstrate this morning, that our Bibles are reliable. We can trust them. And once we do, we'll discover great treasure in them. They are a miracle and a wonder. But how did we get to that conclusion? How can we trust that the Bible is what we Christians believe it is? Now, one way we could frame this is by answering these two questions about the Bible. Is it authentic and is it authoritative? And we'll explain this. The first is a question of literary reliability. Is what we have in our hands the same as what was inspired way back then? And then the second question is one of spiritual credibility. Why these writings and maybe not others? Now, Of course, I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface of this fascinating topic in the few minutes that we have together. And if you're interested in this kind of thing and you'd like to learn more, let me know. I can certainly refer you to all kinds of, it is a vast and super, super fascinating topic. But for now, let's jump in. All right, here we go. First question, is it authentic? In other words, can we trust that it still is what it claims to be, that it still says the same thing all these centuries later. Psalm 119 says, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Jesus says in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, this is true. And this is true in ways that kind of go beyond the poetic. These, These are very beautiful poetic ways of saying something. But the fact is, God's word miraculously endures. Now, warning. We're delving into the field of ancient literature here for a few minutes. And I know it's still morning. Maybe you haven't had much coffee yet. So for a minute or two, this is going to feel like some course in school you struggle to stay awake in. But I'm just asking you to stay with me. All right? Okay, just making sure. I, you know, I, I, it's just me up here. I need to know that you're, you're with me. All right. Now. Because it's physically impossible to have the originals, the pieces of paper, so to speak, the papyrus, the scrolls, it's physically impossible to have the originals. There are two big ways that scholars determine the authenticity of any ancient writing. First, they count and compare the manuscript copies. And then two, they determine how close in time the earliest copies are to when we know the originals written. Now, this isn't just true of the Bible. It's not an issue that's unique to the Bible. It's a question that's asked of any other document that comes down to us from antiquity. The Jewish scriptures 
what we call the Old Testament, have been so carefully copied and preserved by the Jewish people that its authenticity is super solid. So for our few minutes, we're going to turn our attention to the New Testament, the scriptures that tell the story of Jesus and the church. Now, we have physical copies of the New Testament, um, and not, not on me, I don't have any copies with me, and you probably don't, but you know, we as a society, we as human beings, we have physical copies of the New Testament commencing within a couple of generations from the writing of the originals. Whereas in the case of other ancient texts, there might be five, eight, ten centuries that elapsed between the originals and our earliest surviving copies. Let's look at some examples. First, a guy named Tacitus, a Roman historian, he wrote his Annals of Imperial Rome in about 116 AD. His first six books exist today in only one manuscript. It was copied at about 850 AD. Books 11 through 16 are in another manuscript dating from the 11th century. Books 7 through 10 are lost. So there is a long gap between the time that Tacitus sought his information and wrote it down and our only existing manuscript copies. Now, there's a guy named Josephus, famous Jewish historian. He wrote around 75 AD. We have nine Greek manuscripts of his seminal work, The Jewish War. Everyone agrees this is a massive piece of literature that, that tells us so much. And these copies that we have are written in the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries. So about 1,000 years later. Those numbers are surprising but there, because there is but the thinnest thread of manuscripts connecting these ancient works to the modern world. But scholars have no trouble accepting them as, what's our key word here, authentic. So they pass the test. By comparison, let's ask this, how many New Testament Greek manuscripts are in existence today? And we'll do this by making one more comparison. Next to the New Testament, the greatest amount of manuscript testimony is Homer's, Homer's Iliad. Remember reading the Iliad in high school? Maybe the Odyssey, maybe both, right? Epic poems. The Iliad was written about 800 BC. Now, the earliest manuscript copy that is in existence is dated around 200 AD. Again, that's, that's a thousand years after the fact. And today, we have fewer, a little under 650 manuscripts. So, 650 manuscripts, the earliest of which was copied a thousand years before the originals were ever, you know, written, before Homer lived and, and wrote what he wrote. The first accounts of Jesus that we have in our Bibles were written around 60 AD. The earliest physical manuscripts which we have are dated around 120 AD. 60 years, not a thousand, but 60. And today, <clears throat> pardon me, we have over 5,000 manuscripts of uh, Greek manuscripts. Now, this is a big deal. Literary, in terms of studying literary history and, and how these things come together, this is a huge deal. Clearly, this tells us something real and substantive and epic happened in the sheer amount of writing and the accuracy of that writing as it was copied and distributed. So the grand total of Greek manuscripts is actually over 5,600. In addition to Greek documents, there's thousands of other New Testament manuscripts in other languages, totaling over 24,000. And so in terms of the multiplicity of manuscripts and the time gap between the originals and our first copies, how does the New Testament stack up against other well-known works of antiquity? 
the quantity of New Testament material is almost embarrassing in comparison. In fact, really, there is no comparison. The manuscript evidence for the New Testament is overwhelming when juxtaposed against other revered, totally accepted as authentic writings of antiquity. A guy named F.F. Bruce, he was an eminent professor at the University of Manchester in England. He once wrote, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good contextual attestation as the New Testament. Scholars Norman Geisler and William Nix say something similar. The New Testament then has not only survived in more manuscripts than any other book from antiquity, but it survived in a purer form than any other great book. A guy named Sir Frederick Kenyon, former director of the British Museum, said that in no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the early, earliest manuscripts so short as that of the New Testament. His conclusion, the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us as they were written, has now been removed. In other words, okay, we got all that, take, take, we just took all that in. In other words, we can be more sure of the New Testament than of any other ancient writing and that what we have in, in that what we have and what was original are the same. That's not a religious opinion or conclusion. It's simply an academic and a scholarly one. That's one way, and like I said, there are other ways certainly to address this, but that's one major way that anyone dealing with any ancient literature, literature begins to try to answer the question, is it authentic? And when we look at our scriptures, the only answer is yes. They are authentic. It's this overwhelming evidence that points to something substantive and amazing and real. We have in our Holy Scriptures, in our Bibles, what they were meant to say, what God inspired the authors to say. And that is huge. So that's the first question. Is it authentic? Let's move to the second one. Is it authoritative? Does it contain and convey the true voice of the earliest people? of God. One of those earliest people, the Apostle Peter, at one point wrote this, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. We're talking this morning about becoming more certain in the validity of the word of God. That's a great thing to do. It's a great question to ask. It's why we're starting our request summer, laying this, this down right now, this truth about the Holy Scriptures. But let's also remember, as we're kind of, feels like a little bit of an academic exercise here for a minute with all that stuff that we just went through. Let's remember, let, let those facts land on us and inspire us to do what? Pay attention. Because what we're talking about here is a light shining in our dark world. That when we stop, you and I, and read the Holy Scriptures, when we crack open those Bibles and spend some time letting that truth come into us, we are doing something that we should never underestimate as just being, yeah, you know, it's just a thing I do or thing I'm, I guess I'm supposed to do. That we are doing something, we are getting to know God, we are drawing near to Him, we are interacting with a miracle every time we open our Bibles. It is a light shining in this dark world. So, now, let's go back and look at a way to answer the question, is it authoritative? 
In other words, how did the early church leaders, we're talking way back in the first centuries, how did the early church leaders determine which books would be considered authoritative and included in the scriptures and which ones would not be included in the scriptures? Basically, they had three criteria. They're pretty straightforward. First, the book in question, the the writing in question, must have what they called apostolic authority. That is, they must have been written either by the apostles themselves who were eyewitnesses to what they wrote, or by direct followers and associates uh, uh, who lived with and heard from those apostles. So we have, for instance, Matthew, one of the 12 apostles, and we have John, one of the 12 apostles. And then there are two other gospel writers. There's Mark, who was a close associate of the apostle Peter. And it's very clear by reading Mark that we're, we're, we're hearing Peter's account of his time with Jesus, and then you also have Luke, who was a close associate with Paul and who was uh, deeply involved in the life of the early church and did massive amounts of research uh, to read to write the books of Luke and of Acts. And so, this was the first uh, question: Does it have what they called apostolic or apostle authority? Second, in other words, did it go all the way back to the beginning? Second, was the document congruent? with the basic Christian tradition and teaching that Christians recognized as normative. In other words, there are things you could read and you'd be like, that does not fit with everything else. There seemed to be this chorus of voices that all harmonized together that go all the way back to, the apostol- to what the uh, apostle said, had apostolic authority, and they resonated together. They did not uh, contradict each other. It wasn't like, oh, someone's just making some stuff up and adding to it. No, this fits with what the earliest testimony of the story and the truth of Jesus had to say. And then the third one was uh, the criterion of whether the document had continuous acceptance from the earliest recorded time were, were Christians continually accepting this for what it says it was. Did it have acceptance and usage uh, from, the even, from the very earliest years? So those were simply the three criteria. And so from those criteria, our 27 books of the New Testament were considered to pass all three. And so they were considered what's called canon. Now, sometimes you might hear that word. I remember when I first heard it, I thought, canon, isn't that that thing that goes boom, right? People used to use it in wars. But this is C-A-N-O-N, just one N in the middle. And it refers, it's a Greek word that means measuring rod. So in other words, these are the books that were measured and met the standard, and so they were included in the canon, or they were canonical. British commentator William Barclay puts it this way. It is the simple truth to say that the New Testament books became canonical because no one could stop them from doing so. In other words, it was just evident to those who were asking the question early, early on that these 27 books were clearly, they met all three criteria. So you see, the canon, as we put it, or the 27 books of the New Testament, is a list uh, of authoritative books. It is not an authoritative list of books. These documents didn't derive their authority from being selected by some council or, or whatever. Each was authoritative before anyone gathered them together. The early church merely listened and agreed that these were, and had been for a long time, the authoritative accounts. Now, why is that important? Because we might think, all these centuries later, we might somehow get the idea that, you know what, some, somebody um, 
uh, the, just decided this. The canon emerged only after people got together in these councils, and then they just kind of made pronouncements saying uh, this, this is in and this is out, and there wasn't a lot of reason to it, or maybe there was some politics to it, or on and on. But really, that would be kind of like, in, in reality, would be kind of like saying, let's get several academies of musicians together to make the pronouncement that the music of Bach and Beethoven is wonderful. It was already wonderful, right? You didn't need anyone to declare that. It was already true. And that's what these councils did. They recognized what was already widely accepted and true and then brought them together, the 27 books of our New Testament. So, like I said, in only just a few minutes here, this is my best attempt at beginning to answer the questions first, is it authentic? And secondly, is it authoritative when we're looking at what we call the Bible? Believers, since the beginning, have found them to be so. These things are really quite amazing. The story of the Bible, its preservation, its collection, and they, these things are not to be undervalued. We can have confidence that our Bibles are reliable. And when we do, we're going to find great treasure there. Psalm 119 says, Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. And ultimately, that's the goal of answering such a question like, and I mentioned this earlier, uh, is the Bible reliable or can it be trusted? Once we begin to see, whoa, there is something exceptional here about this book we call the Bible. It is unlike any other book ever. It's incomparable in all kinds of ways. And that thoroughly, them being thoroughly tested, these promises, the goodness of God, the truth of God, found in these miraculous Holy Scriptures, cause us to love these words because we love the one who gave us these words. Let's revel in the worth and the wonder of God's word because there is a God and he has said things. He has shared things. And this should warrant our rapt attention. It's a book like no other. So I urge you today, accept a truth greater than yourself. Maybe this is all brand new to you and you're still checking out what it even means to follow Jesus. That's awesome. I hope you'll find Outlook to be a fun and safe place where you can really start to uh, explore that truth and kick the tires on what it even means to be a Christian. I'm really glad that you're here, whether you're online or you're here right here in the room right now. What the scriptures remind us, what this even brief, brief look at the miracle that is uh, the written word of God, what it reminds us of is there is a truth greater than ourselves. There's something happening here that's beyond human explanation. Something divine and truly a miracle is in our hands when we hold our Bibles. Let's go back to our friend William Tyndale before we wrap up. He spent several years risking his life in order to translate the rest of the Bible. He got that New Testament out there in 1526, and then he kept working. For him, the risk was worth it. Check out this quote that he wrote at one point. He says, and he uses some old language, so hang with me. Let it not make thee despair, he says. Neither, let, neither yet discourage thee, O reader, that it is forbidden thee in pain of life and goods or that it is made breaking of the king's peace or treason unto his highness. In other words, don't, let it, don't despair and don't let it discourage you that even though your life and your goods could be taken from you because you've been breaking the king's law and you could be counted as treasonous to him, let none of those things discourage you. 
in order that you might read the word of thy soul's health, the Holy Bible. For if God, I love this conclusion, for if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us, be they bishops, cardinals, popes? Tyndale's making it clear, look, O reader, have courage. Don't despair. Don't be discouraged. Just because it's against the law right now, just because you might take some heat, just because it's a little dangerous, don't neglect the reading of the word of your soul's health. My soul needs this word. You may realize it. You may be coming to realize it. You may not yet realize it. But your soul needs that word too. It is the word of our soul's health. And we cannot neglect in reading it. Tyndale translated most of the Bible. But before he was finished, he was tricked by what he called a vicious and mean villain who revealed his hideout. Now this led to his imprisonment, and then he was tried on a charge of heresy and was, of course, declared guilty. In October 1536, Tyndale was tied to the stake and strangled by an executioner. Then, much as they had tried to do with as many copies as they could of the scriptures he translated, they set set to flame the body of a man who had but one goal, to make the Bible readable for as many people as he could. Let's remember that when we pick up our Bible, or sometimes forget to pick up our Bible. No book compares to it, and nothing needs stop us, deter us, distract us from accepting it as God's word and reading it so that we may follow his way. Amen? Let's pray about that. Lord, we thank you uh, for the truth of your word. We thank you for its goodness. We thank you for the miracle that we have it at our fingertips, well translated in our own language, able to apply it to our lives. God, able to draw near to you in it and through it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to see this afresh. That when we stop and open your word, we are performing a, a, a revolutionary act. An act that turns this world, maybe not so much upside down, but right side up. An act that teaches us how to love others. An act that teaches us how to draw near to you and makes us whole and healthy people. Lord, help us not to underestimate that, but to keep it in our vision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.